Hello and welcome to She Wrote Too, the podcast that shines a light on the remarkable yet often overlooked women writers of the 19th and early 20th centuries. In each episode, we focus on a work of literature that we think deserves to be better known today. I'm Caroline Rance. I'm Nicola Morgan. Together we invite you to join us as we unearth neglected voices, rediscover hidden tales and celebrate the literary brilliance of the women who have gone before us. We'll delve into the lives and works of unsung heroines who challenge social norms with wit and ingenuity. We'll not only discuss their writings, but also the historical context that shaped their lives and the challenges they faced as women in a predominantly male literary landscape. Don't miss a single episode of She Wrote Too. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast platform and be a part of the tribute to the female writers who deserve to be read, celebrated and remembered. Hello and in this episode of She Wrote Too, we're going to be discussing the novel A City Girl by Margaret Harkness, which was first published in 1887. Yes, and she originally published it under the pseudonym of John Law, so she was one of the many female writers who have felt the need to use a male pseudonym for their work. Now, we do have a few little notices to say at the beginning. First of all, thank you very much to everybody who's subscribed to She Wrote To. If you haven't subscribed yet and you'd like to, you can fill in the little form on our Substack page, and then you will receive these podcasts every time we publish them. Now, as we go into this episode, just our usual warning that there will be spoilers. We're going to be talking about the plot and what happens right up to the end. And we do touch on the very difficult subject of child death. And we do understand that that is a difficult subject for many people to contend with. So if that's something that you would not prefer to listen to this time, we hope that we will see you in our next episode. So on to A City Girl. Yes, this was a really interesting one, isn't it? Because it's looking at working-class life in the East End in Whitechapel in 1887. And 1887 is just a couple of years before Whitechapel became even more notorious because of the Jack the Ripper murders. So it's before that happened, but it was a very, very destitute area Mm. with very high crime rate Mm -hmm. and very high poverty. And at that point we had a government that was trying to do something for the working classes. If any of you did your GCSE history where you did Gladstone and Disraeli like I did, you'll know that (laughs) Gladstone spent a lot of his time trying to improve the lot of the working classes. But he was only really ever scratching around at the edges. But one of the things that they did was try and improve some of the slums where people were living in really appalling conditions. And... One of the buildings which they worked on was at the docks in in Whitechapel and it was called St Catherine's Building and this building is part of the focus of this novel. Yes, it's called, I think she's named it Charlotte Building, but it's pretty much the same as what the situation was in real life. There were slums that were cleared and then there would be these... Was it organised by the authorities? Was there philanthropy involved from your research? Yes, it was philanthropic, but there was government funding as well. Mm -hmm. But it was made to be commercially viable. Mm. These were not luxury properties. They were making them for people to pay rent, but it was trying to improve the lot of the working class who were living, as I said, in in, in absolutely terrible conditions. It was like big dormitories almost. Mm. Well, not quite, but 
or, or university halls. Yeah, I suppose or... families did have their own accommodation. You couldn't really call it a flat, I suppose. It's not quite up to that level. Maybe a bedsit, would you say? Yes, it was that mm. kind of thing. Mm. They were sharing toilet facilities mm-hmm. and sanitation, but at least they had them, yeah. which was an improvement. Mm. Their lives were so difficult, they really didn't have much opportunity at all to improve because they had to do jobs, mainly in factories, where their their work involved them doing things that we would now get a machine to do. And they were not well paid for it. And if they didn't like it or their conditions, there wasn't much they could do because they could go to somewhere else and do similar work for similar money. Yeah. So that's the situation that our heroine is in, in A City Girl. Her name is Nellie Ambrose. She's a young woman living in this Charlotte building with her mum and her brother. And they're pretty useless, aren't they? The brother is just a layabout. He doesn't seem to do anything at all. And he's a bully. And the mother is supposedly running some kind of little shop from her accommodation. But it doesn't seem like it really brings in any money. And anything that she does get, she spends on drink. So Nellie is the breadwinner for this family family and she does that by machining trousers she has a sewing machine and she makes trousers which she then has to take back to the person called a sweater who is kind of the leader of what you, <laughs> probably where we get the term sweatshop from mm. so he would then then pay for them and she's very good at this but she's having to work as many hours as she possibly can just to get enough money to support this family yeah she works very hard doesn't she mm-hmm. and actually considering what I was just saying is that some of the people would never be able to improve their lot. But Nellie has aspirations, mm. only in the sense that she wants a feather for her cap. And, yeah, she just wants um, something nice in her life. So one of the things that she wants to do with her money when she gets it is to go and choose a feather, and she can't decide between red and blue. It's as though she fixates on that as something that will just make life a little bit more bearable for a day or two. Yes. So this story is, at first glance potentially about her and a romance with a middle-class man Mm. and I think that's what I'd read about the book before we looked at it but I would say it's about so much more than that and that's Mm. almost an ancillary issue yeah the other thing about Nellie is that she's very beautiful we get told this a lot she's got (laughs) red brown hair we keep hearing about her red brown hair and lots of people admire her including the caretaker of Charlotte Buildings who's called George and they're kind of seeing each other in a way yes i think he sort of said to her that he'll marry her yeah and so they knock about together at the Mm. weekends and go for walks and things like that yeah but But he he wants to improve his lot as well Mm. he doesn't feel that he's really in a financial position to get married at the moment but it's in his plans for the future yes now he's quite a tough guy because he's a bit of an insight into the nature of of where they were living because he has to break up all sorts of fights and deal yeah, with, so with trouble. These kinds of buildings, because they were built on private property, they weren't really on the beat of the police. So George is therefore responsible for acting in that capacity and trying to stop anything bad going on. For 600 people. Mm. Just one guy. Let's talk a little bit about Margaret Harkness and her life and what she was trying to achieve. She was quite a an intellectual woman and she was involved in political movements she was a member of the the social democratic federation and she was friends with a lot of thinkers of the time yeah, including quite... amy levy who we did a podcast about recently yes so they knew each other yes i found that very interesting yeah. so i think that 
tells us something a little bit about the, the sort of clique that she was moving in. And one of the things that she did as part of her research and interest in socialism was to spend time living in the slums of London's East End. Mm. She had a cousin who was heavily involved in these philanthropic accommodation blocks, and that was Beatrice Potter Webb, not to be confused with Beatrix Potter, which yes. I did originally. Well, we both did. <laughs> we both were like, is it the same one? <laughs> what, the one with the little mouses? <laughs> Sorry, that's no. why you called them when I was a child. Yeah. <laughs> But so um, Beatrice Webb was Margaret Harkness's second cousin and they became friends when they were quite young. And they had both independently moved to London. Beatrice was one of the rent collectors for Catherine Buildings. They had female rent collectors, which is also the case in the fictional account. So we were talking about why they would specifically want women to do this job. And I think in some ways it was the idea that these usually middle class women would be exerting some kind of beneficial influence on the (laughs) inhabitants. So they'd be setting a good example of what life could be like, just showing good behaviour and having an influence on these working class women. Yeah, the whole project was really whilst well-intentioned, was very patronising and very patriarchal. And it was really, come you working classes, come and learn to be middle class like us. And so we're going to send round these nice ladies who will tell you off for your bad ways and make you feel guilty. But in some ways, you can see that they might have been able to educate them about some things. For example, they didn't have a very good understanding of disease or what caused it. And so without that knowledge or without anyone telling you or really didn't have a clue and so these middle class women would come round telling them <laughs> about this stuff so annoying and patronizing as it sounds it is that kind of thing mm-hmm. of we know better than you let's mm-hmm. let's let's sort of give you some information but i suppose at that time that was the way things were. I suppose on a larger scale, it was the whole colonial idea of going to some place and civilising people. Civilising It's called savages. the white man's yeah. burden, that you were supposed to be setting a good example to people. And perhaps that's the similar kind of attitude that's happening on this very localised scale in London. And the thing is, going back to what we're talking about, actually, which is hardness, this is what she was really doing in, in real life. So she did have first-hand experience of going to these sorts of buildings and in the book she describes them the buildings were not beautiful to look upon they might even have been termed ugly their long yellow walls were lined with small windows upon the rails of their stiff iron balconies hung shirts blankets and other articles fresh from the wash tub inside their walls brown doors opened into dark stone passages and narrow winding staircases led from passage to passage up to the roof it sounds like a pretty grim place and mm. sounds quite prison-like. Yeah, almost workhouse. It's a step up from the workhouse. So that was where the absolutely destitute people might end up. In this, they did have some autonomy and dignity, but they were in a pretty bad situation. There were also quite a lot of restrictions placed upon what they could do because considering that these people would really struggle to improve their lot... One of the ways they might have wanted to do it was by some other trade, Mm. you know, selling things like in the story where she's got a small shop that she uses to fund her booze, but having selling animals or eggs or Mm. so what they did in these buildings was place loads of restrictions on how the property could be used. 
And interesting that it mentions about the hanging shirts because they were not allowed to take in laundry no. for others, for example. They were not allowed to have any animals, so they couldn't be selling eggs or meat. So it placed further restrictions on their life. So Harkness had all this experience firsthand, which is why the novel could be termed as quite realistic. Mm. And she trained as a nurse as well. That was her original idea for a career. Yeah. Um, she ha- she didn't end up carrying on with that, but she then decided to become a dispenser in a hospital. Mm. So she had that pharmaceutical background. Um, so in the hospital, in that job, she would have been meeting people from all walks of life. So she did have experience. It's not a case of somebody being a slum tourist, which was another issue that emerged at the time. That was a risk for for people taking an interest in the poor, and Caroline and I discussed this before, that if you were taking an interest and going and reporting on it, and she did do some investigative journalism, you could be accused of being voyeuristic and unhelpful, but unless somebody took the interest and took time to go and have a look around, then it wasn't talked about because the people who lived there wouldn't be writing and talking about it because they were just surviving. Mm. So it actually took someone with some resources and time to take an interest to actually tell their broader story. So on that basis, I think it's justifiable. People, as you say, were just trying to wake up and get through the day. Even if they did manage to have some education as children, they weren't going to be sitting there writing an article about their life. No. So this is who Harkness was, and in this novel, it seems that she was trying to get across the state of people's lives. Mm. So she uses a romance to sort of drive the plot, doesn't she? Yeah, I mean, it's not really romantic, is it? It's It's not not really romantic at all. So you've got this bloke called Arthur Grant, and he's, as far as we know, a middle-class chap. He's married, he's got a family, and... I'm not sure exactly what he does for a job. He's the treasurer of the hospital. That's possibly yeah, a charity role. Yeah, he does as little role. as possible. Yes, he doesn't really <clears throat> No, much. he's relying on... He's got some money from his family and he's going to inherit some from an uncle in Ireland or something oh, like that. Right, so he's wafting about. Yeah, and his, his wife is going to inherit quite a right. lot and that will double his income mm. once his wife inherits. Mm. So he's, he's living on family money. Mm. Not loaded, but certainly enough to live quite a comfortable middle-class life Mm. and do bits and pieces. His work at the hospital is described as sort of he does some something and gets paid a fee. Yeah. He does some sort of accounts for them or something. And Uh, he's got a kind of interest in politics, but it's all very half-arsed. Yeah, (laughs) that's a good expression. I think his interest might be in appearing in public and speaking more than what he's actually talking about. Because yeah. he talks at the... Does he talk at the Radical Club? They've got two clubs, because this reflects the politics of the time. There's the Liberals and the Radicals. Well, the Radicals was a, a brand new thing, and he talks at the Radical mm. Club. And yet his behaviour in life <laughs> is far from radical. Yes. In fact, you described him in a, in a pre-recording conversation as amoral. Yes. What did you mean by that? He just doesn't seem to have any empathy or care for other people's experiences. So we'll talk a bit about what actually happens. This is spoilers. But Nellie is somewhat impressed with him. They 
get on quite well and they start going out to do things like going to the theatre they go on the river for a boat ride and this is real <laughs> escapism <laughs> I didn't know that you could get pregnant from going on a boat ride <laughs> but apparently you can yeah. spoiler because yeah. <laughs> Nelly ends up pregnant spoiler and but but they've been out on a few dates haven't they yes well they're, they're not really dates they just it's they're supposed to be just going together out. um and then it's like when i was studying tessa the d'urbervilles for a level i think or something or gcse you get to that bit where tess suddenly has a baby and you flick back and think wait, wait a minute wait, when did what? that happen and this is very <laughs> similar kind of circumstances there's nothing explicit told to us at all but then we discover later on that nelly is pregnant and by this time, Arthur has wandered off. He's, he's gone back to his family. She looks through the window, doesn't she, at him mm. at his home and sees him playing with his little kids and having this lovely, yeah. happy family life and knows that she's completely excluded from that. So he doesn't know that she's pregnant. And actually later on in the book, when he does meet her again, he's forgotten, he hardly recognises her because yeah. he's forgotten who she, she is. She was insignificant to him, whereas obviously to her, mm. he was he was a big deal. So she first meets him when he's at this speaking function mm. so I think she's quite taken with him because he's up there in front of people being quite impressive yeah. and he's wealthier than she is not that she's ever actually she doesn't aspire to a romance with him he's married to someone else and mm. she knows that mm. so she just sort of goes goes out on boats with him goes out on days out yeah it's um, just a bit of respite from her awful life yes yes some days more exciting than others, it seems. But we don't get to hear any details of that until yeah. suddenly Nelly starts being unwell, doesn't mm. she? And we don't even get to understand why she's unwell no. until suddenly she's having a baby. Yeah, so we can get the idea that she's done something that is considered awful in the eyes of her family and community because she goes to take some of her trousers that she's made back to the bloke called the sweater and that man's wife kicks her out. So presumably yeah. she's able to see the pregnancy and Nellie is now out of work all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. And then she goes home, her brother tries to beat her and chucks her out of the house. Yeah. So she ends up homeless and with no work and expecting a baby. Yes. Wasn't life wonderful for mm. women in those days? But she is thankfully taken in by the Salvation Army. Yes, there is a charity thing. I think they call it the Rescue Lassies Home. And they help young women who have fallen into difficult circumstances. So she's taken in by the Salvation Army and she gets a reasonably permanent home living with Salvation Army Sergeant, who is, as far as we know, a widow who has lost many children in the past. But once Nellie has the little baby boy, she finds some fulfilment in motherhood. Mm. She does a really great job in... Actually, it's her... Remember George, her sort of boyfriend-ish. Mm. This this man intends to marry her mm. once he's improved his lot, doesn't he? Yeah. But then, of course, she's pregnant, so he's not going to then. Mm. But he, he pays her rent for oh, her to live yeah. at the Salvation Army. He gets, yeah. he gets the money out of the post office, mm. which is actually quite nice. Yeah, he does care about her. Yeah, because that would have been the money that he was saving to... Mm better himself yeah. to marry her so he does actually help her out a bit which mm. was quite surprising because he's quite a selfish man generally yeah. but that is really really helpful because without his assistance there she 
might have really struggled. Yeah. So she manages <clears throat> to find some more work. She is a very talented seamstress, so she's able to take up that again with a different employer and look after her baby. And things are more or less on an even keel for a while. And then, as often happens in Victorian fiction, somebody starts to become sickly, and that, unfortunately, is the little baby. And yeah. Um, Nellie is a devout Catholic, which we haven't mentioned before, but she gets really concerned about needing to have the baby christened in case something happens. I suppose she kind of knows deep down that child mortality is very high and that this has happened to a lot of people. And it's a real spiritual concern of hers that the baby must be christened. And yet she's running into difficulties because she's an unmarried mother. So it's hard for her to just turn up at the Catholic church and ask for him to be baptised. But she does do that eventually, and she manages to get the baby christened, and he's called Arthur after his father. Yes. Even though she is allowed to get him christened, she, she is or baptised, she, she is separated from the mm. other yes, mothers they, who have a yeah. band on their finger. Yeah, they do it all as one thing. I think it seems like there's a point on a Sunday where anybody who needed to could turn up to get their babies christened. So there's quite a few people there. The other mothers are all married and therefore considered respectable by the priest who kind of shoves her off to one side. But he does it nonetheless. Yes. So that that's good. But the, the way the Catholic Church is painted in the book is really not very favourable. No, I don't not. think Harkness was much of a fan. No. She was. Um. <laughs> there's a bit earlier on where Nellie's friend Susan, who also lives in Charlotte Buildings, wants to get married to her sweetheart, but they're both disabled and the church will not marry yes, them. that was awful. Yeah. There's this, um, he's, has he got a hunchback I think or so. something? And, she's and she has got, got um, I think she has got a leg impairment. So, yeah. yes, they both got these disabilities, but they're in love and they want to get married and they're not allowed and to. he won't do it because he treats them as kind of subhuman yeah. or not, not, like real people mm. which is something I've, I've never heard of that had you I mean you know more yeah. about Victorian times than me I suppose, they were treated pretty badly were they? yeah I suppose there was also the idea that any children that they would have might take on their impairments so I suppose there was that worry from the Catholic priest but I suppose we can look back and say isn't that awful that they weren't allowed to get married but just recently I was reading something about how in today's society a disabled person who wants to get married is at risk of losing their benefits because if their spouse is in employment they can end up losing their disability benefits so for some people it means that that's a real barrier for them getting married and that's in 21st century Britain. Wow. Wow I'm just taking that in mm. Caroline I didn't know that we hadn't talked about that before and um, that's quite extraordinary isn't it? Mm. So that's almost like a, you can't get married if you're disabled. Mm. So it's almost an echo of what we're reading in this book set in 1887. That's appalling. That's appalling. As we often find, though, there's quite a lot that we think we've moved on and we're such an advanced society mm. now. And we look at the Victorian times and think, oh, wasn't that terrible? But there's so much still resonating with mm. today's society mm-hmm. in, in quite worrying ways. There's recently been a report from the Sir Joseph Rowntree Foundation about destitution in Britain, and that is available online. We could put a link to that, couldn't we? Yes, Because that shows some of the echoes of this East End Whitechapel scene that we're looking at. 
Yeah. Something that I haven't told you about, Caroline, I was looking for us to go on a tour of Whitechapel. Oh, right. And they do a tour all around Whitechapel. Oh. It's a Jack the Ripper tour. Oh, no, I'm not going on a Jack no, the Ripper tour. No, I don't tour. want to go on a Jack the Ripper tour. But it is actually by a historian mm. who does tell you all about the buildings oh, and right. about the place. Mm-hmm. So they have tagged on to the, you know, why mm. wouldn't they? Because they've got to sell it, haven't mm. they? But. But it does actually look like a really good historical tour of the East End and and what it was like living in this time, as I say. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that we both discussed that we found really interesting was the politics in this story and what what she's doing with the politics. What was your take on this, Caroline? So we've got political activism because we've got people like Arthur Grant who can just drift into politics and do a speech here and there. Yes, he's actually thinking of joining <laughs> yeah, Parliament at yeah, some point. He might isn't just, he? Yeah, he might just become an MP if he feels like it. <laughs> yes, there was some issue that he thought he yeah. might be interested in mm. that he might take up yeah. in Parliament. But he hasn't really got the energy to do that. <laughs> he can't be bothered. But then we have got the political situation of these people who are living in such poverty that even though when they want to change something they haven't got the resources the physical energy because they're starving and they can't necessarily do anything about their situation they can't have a revolution because they're trying to get through the day yes and this is something that we've just talked about because there's a bit of criticism that this novel got Mm. that Caroline and I are not very happy about and it doesn't understand that what the working class people were doing then, it wasn't working nine to five. No. It was working from when you wake up to late into the night till mm. you nearly fell asleep. Yeah. Or, or you did fall asleep. Yeah, for a few pence. Yes. So it was sort of more like 8am till at least eight. But quite often, if you were a peace worker or you were doing matchboxes or mm. something like that, you would go on into the night as long as you possibly could because you got paid for what you did. Mm. So there wasn't really any any time off because the wages were so low that you would do as much as you possibly could because mm. just to feed yourself. Yeah. So every day was an incredible battle just to do the very basics. Mm. Energy levels must have been incredibly low. And so getting involved in politics when you're doing that... It's almost unthinkable, yeah. really. And you mentioned that the novel had had some criticism, so shall we talk about yes. who that came from? It came from Engels, Fried- Yes, Friedrich it? Engels. <laughs> he had got hold of a copy of the book. Either Margaret Harkness or her publisher had sent it to him because it was within his sphere of interest. So he read it. He did enjoy it, fair enough. But the criticism that he had about it was that he felt it wasn't realistic because the working classes were portrayed as passive and they weren't able or willing to do anything to change their situation. So at the time, the socialist movement was sort of starting to get some traction, but it was really amongst the thinking literary intelligentsia Mm. who could imagine that the world could be ordered in a different way than it already had been. At the time, there was only two political parties, really, mainly, who formed governments, which was the Conservatives and the Liberals. They're both very pragmatic and they both mainly just maintained the status quo, tweaking things in accordance with which group they represented the most. But there was no one really coming along and saying, 
we could turn the world upside down and arrange things completely differently. So this was starting to happen in middle class thinking circles, all very well for them with their full mm. tummies over lunch. And so the socialist socialism as an idea was starting at that time, but it was with the people who had the privilege to spend time thinking about it, because mm. it takes quite a lot of imagination to think of dystopias or utopias mm. or something completely and utterly different. Most of the people who were working class would have just been getting on with it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I read recently about socialism at that time was that they didn't necessarily approve of philanthropy and charities, because if poverty was very slightly mitigated and people did have enough food just about, then they wouldn't have that drive to rise up and have a revolution. Quite a middle class idea, yeah. isn't it? Well, if they're starving, then mm. they'll revolt. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> did you think of that over lunch? Mm. <laughs> yes. It was part of the socialist idea. That mm. uh, and and still remains part of it that there there is still a culture of if you think of David Cameron and the big society, he was advocating charity stepping in mm. and society doing lots of things for each other. Whereas a more socialist view would say, no, the state mm. should do mm. that. And people should be insisting on the state doing that. They shouldn't be spending time on, on charity or doing things for free. It should all be provided mm. by a, a central organised government doing it for the people so that sort of idea was was coming up but going back to the criticism which is how we started on this wasn't it yeah so i'll read out a bit from engel's letter so he says in city girl the working class figures as a passive mass unable to help itself and not even making any attempt at striving to help itself all attempts to drag it out of its torpid misery come from without from above so he didn't like the fact that her working class characters weren't behaving in the way that he thought was suitable for them to behave, that they should be a bit more active and doing something to get themselves out of their terrible situation. I personally find that really annoying and <laughs> pompous. And coming from very working class roots, not me personally, mm. but my family... Mm. Um, two generations ago were incredibly poor and were sharing a pair of boots between five Mm. children so they wouldn't go to school each every day you know they would take it in turns because they would be too ashamed to go in bare feet to school and that story actually makes me really cross (laughs) because there were lots of people living in conditions like that and my family were clever hard-working people But they were in the sort of situation, and it wasn't that long after this, I'm talking about the early 1900s, that that was occurring. And that is what things were like. They they couldn't really do anything. Mm. They were just trying to survive. Mm. And so, (laughs) this is why it makes me cross, you see. (laughs) You can feel my personal anger coming through. The the, the sort of pomposity of of someone saying, well, they're not doing enough. Yeah. (laughs) Pompous ass! <laughs> you just had breakfast when you <laughs> wrote that criticism. <laughs> Maybe I should simmer down. I'm going to go over here and simmer down. Yeah. And so Margaret Harkness wrote back to him, didn't she? And it's quite an interesting yes. letter. It's very short and she's very polite. And yet you can read it almost as a bit sarcastic. 
Well, we, we would like to think it is. Yeah, we don't we? know we what don't she know. intended, she, actually. She might... Go on, Caroline, read the lesson. Uh, I could read the whole thing, because it's not that yeah. long, OK? Yeah. Dear Mr Engels, thank you very much for your letter and for your book. So he sent her a book as well. The book mm. I have read already, and I shall read it again now with even greater interest than before. I've always had a great admiration and respect for you, and I never thought that I should be thought worthy of a letter from one like yourself who's helping to make the history of the world. Perhaps when Eleanor comes back, you will allow me to come to see you. I assume that's Eleanor Marks, would it be? Yes. Yeah. Many things you say about my little book are very true, especially about the want of realism in it. It would take too long to explain in a letter my difficulties in this direction. They arise chiefly from want of confidence in my powers, I think, and also from my sex. Please accept my very grateful thanks for your kindness. Yours very truly, Margaret E. Harkness. Mm. So at first glance you think, oh, Margaret, don't blame your lack of confidence and your sex. Come on. But you do think perhaps she was being a little bit sarcastic. She might have been being. Yeah. We, we would really like to think yeah. that she's being totally sarcastic <laughs> and that when she's going to have a conversation with him, then she's gonna, he's going to get it with both barrels. And... Um, <laughs> But, you know, that's just our kind of fantasy. Of yeah. <laughs> she might have just meant her letter. Yeah, she might have We don't know. I think she did meet him and they were friends, I believe. Yeah, they were friends. <laughs> so she, she didn't beat him up. Have you got any thoughts about realism and, and the novel? I think she was writing from things that she'd observed. So she was recognising that people can't always do what is perfect for them. Yes, it might, it might be a great idea to rise up and overthrow the government, but they can't. She's <laughs> trying to describe what she has seen, what she's encountered, not the idealistic situation, um, but what happens. And I think the ending of this book is a very realistic thing to happen. Yeah, I suppose we're jumping ahead a little bit there. No, no, we do need to um, move on to the ending fairly soon. But this, I- this idea about the realism, I think is really there weren't that many people writing about working class lives they were starting to charles booth and various people who were and obviously dickens dickens and his moral tales (laughs) but she was doing something slightly different from them and of course it's not surprising that the men were quite critical of it because Mm -hmm. what's she doing she's got a romance and she's got it set in reality (laughs) yeah and this is what brings us sort of to the ending and to the, the nature of the romance in the book because, of course, the romance isn't really much of a romance. She goes out for a few days with this guy, ends up pregnant. Yeah. He doesn't even remember her when she sees him. Mm. She doesn't seem desperately in love with him either. She's no, quite taken with him no, and she likes the days out. And, and Yeah, likes going out and doing interesting oh, stuff that she wouldn't get the opportunity to do. But I don't see... You know, she's not pining over him. Once she's got her baby, she's... Pretty she's happy. quite happy she, with yeah, the baby. She's like being a mum. She loves the little baby, and that's yeah, all she, she needs. doesn't tell him about no, the baby no. either. The baby does become ill, and she is. I think she's trying some home remedies to start with, and then she takes it to a hospital where she's treated a little bit dismissively by the nurses, but not badly. I mean, they're quite brusque, but they're not awful to her. But anyway, the baby has to stay in hospital, and she's not allowed to stay with him. So she is wandering about in the night. She ends up sleeping somewhere outdoors, and then she comes back the next morning and is given the news quite abruptly that her baby has died and is now in the mortuary. And so she's able to claim the body and take that away with her. And it's really is quite heartbreaking and very poignant that she doesn't want to believe that the baby is dead. So she's carrying him around, she's trying to 
find some signs of life in him and she doesn't want to say goodbye so that i think is very Mm. realistic yes absolutely and that it is so sad the the way they just sort of go Oh, he's in that room. He's yeah, in, you know, he's in the hmm. She had also been appalled and hadn't wanted to leave him because none of the women there were mothers. Hmm. And she had found such a maternal role for herself. She found something within herself in being a mother that she couldn't... I'm getting quite upset oh. about the story. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she couldn't believe that, that that she should leave her child with people who didn't have that, mm. who hadn't been mothers, mm. because she clearly experienced a change in herself. Yeah, and she then has nowhere to go except back to Catherine Buildings, which is called Charlotte Buildings in the book. And I think her brother somehow comes along and he's realised that they haven't got any money and they need her back so that she can start to earn a living. Yes. There is a bit, I think... Yeah, before baby's funeral, she is back at her Salvation Army home. The baby is still there, deceased, in the room with her, and she's having to be on her sewing machine, making money, because she's got no choice. Yeah. And then the brother realises that they have no income and they can't get by without her, and they, they need her to I come back. I think they owe three weeks' rent or mm. something. Yeah. And so so suddenly she's... She's, she's useful to welcome, them again. Yeah. She's welcome home. Mm. Forgiven. Yeah. Yeah, as long as you pay three weeks' rent and... Uh, <laughs> sub us from now on yeah so so she gets to go home it's extraordinary yeah so she turns up back there after the baby's funeral and she meets george who is also welcoming her back in a fashion yeah. um, and he has sort of achieved his ambition of going on to better things because he's found another job he's going to leave and work for what seems to be some kind of community of writers it's a bit like a commune but it's like some kind of village that has been set up where writers are going to live there and do their great works and he's going to be a caretaker for that and he needs Nelly to get married to him and go with him and do her part of looking after this place Mm. and he sort of informs her of that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he doesn't ask her to marry him. He just says uh, they need to get married and go. And of course, at this point, because of the way that life was, she's kind of got to take what yeah. what's available because yeah. otherwise she's going to have a life with her brother and her mother and forevermore. So this is a better option. Mm. And with this option, she also has the chance perhaps of having children in the future. Yes, so she might be able to find that fulfilment that she has briefly experienced for a few months as a mother. What really annoyed me about this episode (laughs) was that she comes home, George is there and he says he's got something to say for her, and he asks her to make him a cup of tea. She's just got back from her child's funeral and he's (laughs) to make him a cup of tea and then fill his tobacco pipe. Yeah. And so she has to do this stuff. While she's being grateful for for this pretty crappy offer that he's making her. yeah yeah so she gets badly treated by everybody all round, doesn't yeah. she but that that maybe that makes her a bit of a heron because she stoically survives it all despite yeah. everyone being pretty dreadful to her yeah she's resilient isn't she yeah and she gets used all round there's really nobody looking out for her no. in any other than the Salvation Army yes, are, but then they, that's their ish. ministry. They sort of have to do it. It's not about her. It's about looking after a young lassie on hard times. Yes, but they still did. Yeah. And without them, she could have died. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> life was 
harsh. Yeah. Life is very, very harsh. Unlike most of the books that we have discussed on this podcast, this one is not really funny, is it? But there are moments where you can just give a bit of a wry smile, and I think some of that humour comes from the character of George. He has been in the armed services in the past, (laughs) and he really regrets leaving. So all the time he's just complaining about saying, I wish I'd never left the service. And anything that goes slightly wrong, he just wishes that he was back in. I don't know whether it's the Navy or the Army, but he was in some kind of armed forces. And his actual last line and the very last line of the book is George muttering, I wish I'd never left the service, as he is preparing to go off to this new job to get married and have what is supposed to be a better life. He's still harking back to this. And there is some kind of grim and bleak humour in this very ending to the novel. There is. Caroline and I have wondered whether, because we find quite a lot of things funny, we do wonder whether it's just us. (laughs) But I don't think it it is. I think, particularly with dark and grim times, gallows humour is a thing. It's how people cope, isn't it? Mm. It's, It's a coping mechanism. And George always, throughout the book, harks back to the service yeah. and so that he gets the closing line mm. which is a lovely finish actually yeah it, it sort of shows us what beautiful nelly with her beautiful red brown <laughs> hair is going to have to put up with yeah. because actually this is the best she's gonna get yeah and he is <sighs> he's not a bad guy is he's he not, yeah it's a pretty he's low not as bad bar. as the other one no but you, there is some kind of hopefulness in the ending because you get the impression that they're going to be all right it's not going to be a life of luxury, but you can imagine them being okay in the future and thriving. Yeah, and as we saw Nelly really enjoying motherhood in the brief chance that she got, that is, again, hope for the future because she didn't have a problematic childbirth or anything like no. that that suggests that she won't have future children. No. So, hooray for Nelly! Yeah. And there's a kind of final bit of irony that I think Margaret Harkness has put into this ending situation, that they're going to work for this community of authors. (laughs) And it was kind of loosely based on something that was happening in real life where a lot of socialists had got together to set up this community where they'd be doing literary things um, and engaging in political activism. And, of course, it relies on people like George and Nellie to keep the place running. Yeah. Who's going to be bringing these socialists their dinner? Who's going to be cleaning up? Who's going to be doing the mowing the lawn? She is, I think, really yeah. taking the mickey. Yeah. Uh, these the, these socialists with their grand ideas, yeah. having servants. So, yeah, I think that is Harkness having mm. a bit of a dig, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, why else would she include it? Yeah, because it could have been any sort of job, but she picks this very specific and very unusual situation for them to go into. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah! So we're coming to the end of this podcast now. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to share it with your friends and encourage them to subscribe. And so we'll say goodbye for now and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Goodbye. You have been listening to She Wrote Too with Nicola Morgan and Caroline Rance. To make sure you're one of the first to hear about our next episode, subscribe at shewrote2.substack.com. That's shewrote2.substack.com, where you can also find extra content and join our social media networks. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait to welcome you again next time. Mm-hmm.